Well, this morning, I want us to consider together a particularly powerful passage of Scripture. We know that all Scripture is true, it is given by God, it uh, is profitable for us, and yet parts of it are clearer than others, and parts of it are presented with more force and urgency than others. Suppose someone were to ask you, what is the most forceful, solemn command given in Scripture? What might you say? This isn't necessarily the most important command, like love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's the one that in its presentation is given most forcefully and solemnly. If you're at a loss, uh, don't feel bad. That's not a question we often ask. Uh, But we'll discover it this morning, I think. How does the Bible make certain commands or statements more forceful than others? We all have ways of making certain things we say stand out. When speaking, we can use tone or volume of voice, speaking loudly or more slowly to enunciate more clearly so our words grab attention. We can begin a statement with an attention-grabbing word like, look, or we can add words like, I really mean this, to make sure people are hearing what we say. When I was a kid, I knew that when I heard my full name, Philip Ray Owen, I needed to listen. I was in trouble. (laughs) I needed to pay close attention to what words were coming because they were going to affect my little life in a significant way. Well, we're going to consider a passage this morning that presents a command in an especially serious attention-grabbing way. And because of its presentation, I think our passage this morning may qualify as the most solemn command given in the entire Bible. To help us appreciate this, I want to break from our normal passage of reading the passage first, or our normal practice. Uh, In fact, I'm not even going to tell you what the passage is just yet. Now, you can cheat if you have a bulletin, but put those down under your seat, and we'll go for the surprise. Um, I'll begin by giving and commenting on each phrase of the lead-up to the command in this passage. And uh, then when we get to the command itself, I'll have you turn to the passage and we'll read it together. I hope that in this way we'll feel the gravity of this particular passage and maybe be able to appreciate it a little bit more as its original hearers might have. Some of you will be familiar enough with the passage uh, to figure it out, but please keep that to yourself until we all turn there. Don't turn to the passage yourself or share your encyclopedic biblical knowledge with your neighbor. We'll uh, play along with me and we'll all try to appreciate the force of this passage in a fresh way. So, our passage begins with these words. I charge you. And right away, that should cause us to sit up and take notice. Everything that the scripture says demands our obedience without special instruction. For example, when God says through Moses, you shall not commit adultery, isn't that enough for us to obey? When Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, do we really need anything more added to it to take him seriously? And yet, our scriptural author was moved to introduce this command with, I charge you. So we already have something that should make us pay special attention to this passage. What comes next, though, is more sobering. Our passage says, I charge you in the presence 
of God. So, it sounds like in receiving this charge, we are to picture ourselves in the presence of God. With him looking on and lending the full weight of his authority to what is said. So what would it be like to receive this charge in the visible, felt presence of God? Even Moses didn't receive the Ten Commandments that way. He was miraculously sustained without food or water for 40 days on Mount Sinai and received uh, the tablets of stone written with the very finger of God and seeing the pattern of the tabernacle. Yet the New Testament ascribes most of the giving of the law to the action of angels. And after Moses had received the law, he still asked God, let me see your glory. He hadn't yet. Uh, When he did, God let him see just a little glimpse of his glory. And it had such a profound effect on Moses that the skin of his face literally shone afterwards. So what would it be like for us to receive this command in the visible, felt presence of God? Isaiah described an experience of the presence of God that caused him to cry out in despair as a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel and Daniel each saw visions of God's glory that caused them to fall down almost as dead and to need special strengthening even to remain in God's presence to hear the message. So, God is here. We are in his presence. But since there isn't any awe-inspiring, visible manifestation of it, we need to picture in whatever primitive way we can what it would be like to receive this charge in the visible presence of God. But we're not done. Our author goes on to say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That in itself can be taken to affirm the divinity of Jesus, but the fact that our author calls special attention to the presence of the second person of the Trinity draws our thoughts to what he in particular has accomplished. We are in the presence of the one who loved us before the foundation of the world and took on flesh so he could bear each and every one of our sins purely so that we would not be condemned because of them. When we were yet sinners, he gave his life for us. After we had jilted him, insulted him, shamed him in every way possible, he still gave his life for us. He gave everything he had to buy us back. And now, this one has something to say to us. Are we listening? It's not primarily Jesus' atoning death for our sins, though, that is in our author's view. In rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, he now bears all authority in heaven and on earth, and to him has been entrusted the final judgment of the world. So our author says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. If our passion to obey our Lord and Savior purely out of love and gratitude isn't enough, our author reminds us that he is also to be our judge. We who have been redeemed from our sins and made one with Christ 
will also give an account before him as to how we have lived our lives. We could speculate what might happen for a genuine Christian, but who has remained immature his or her whole life and whose life has been tainted by much that is in the world. What will happen on that final day? We don't know exactly, but more serious is the prospect of those who might think they belong to Christ, but because they never took his lordship seriously, betray a so-called faith that isn't genuine. Jesus spoke of those who would cry out to him, Lord, Lord, but he dismisses as workers of lawlessness. He told a parable of a servant who was cast into outer darkness because he was wicked and slothful. Peter wrote that we must make every effort to have our lives characterized by certain character qualities because by practicing those, we confirm our calling and election. We haven't time this morning to develop those ideas, but if we have come to the Lord Jesus alone for salvation and love him and desire to please him, please be assured that eternal life is yours. Entrance into heaven is not a matter of being good enough. Yet, if the thought of standing before Christ Jesus as judge does not sober you, it could be evidence that your faith is not genuine. The word comes to us this morning then as a charge, given in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Are we attentive to what our judge is going to tell us to do? But our author isn't done yet. It's as if we've already, as if we already haven't said enough, he says, and by his appearing. We've just spoken of Jesus' acting as judge in sober terms, and it should sober us. But for the Christian living to please his or her Lord, Christ's appearing to judge is something to look forward to with joy. Paul wrote to Timothy, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul then speaks of all true believers as those who love Christ's appearing. In another place, he refers to it as our blessed hope. Christ's appearing is the longing of our hearts. It's the hope that makes the struggles and uh, suffering of this life worthwhile. The charge comes to us not only in the sobering presence of God and of Christ our judge, but also in light of everything we hope for, everything we look forward to, the fulfillment of our most cherished hopes. It's as if our author were saying, do you really want to rejoice in full, undiluted joy at Christ's appearing? Then hear this charge. So what is it then? But wait, our author still isn't done. He adds one more thing. And by his kingdom. Here the scope is clearly beyond any personal hopes we might have. It looks toward the, the goal toward which the whole history of the world has been moving from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created to rule under God as his regents. But they fell from that calling. 
And ever since, God has been at work in the world to reestablish his kingdom in its fullness. Moses spoke of God's establishing himself as king over Israel, but Israel lost that as it demanded a human king. But redeeming even that, God spoke to David of one of his descendants who would rule on his throne forever. Hundreds of years later, John the Baptist came preaching about Christ, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus did bring the beginning of that kingdom, but its fullness awaits. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And consequently, the apostles speak of a time yet in the future when Christ will come again to establish the kingdom in its fullness, a day in which it will be said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Our charge, then, comes in view of Christ's kingdom, the goal and consummation of the ages. It is as if our author is saying, do you care about God's ultimate purpose for the world? Are you living in light of the consummation of human history? Are you praying for that kingdom to come? Then hear this charge. What is it? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If we're using one of the blue pew Bibles, it's on page 1099. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll read the first two verses. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here we have it. Arguably the most forceful, solemn command given anywhere in Scripture. Preach the word. The command was originally given, obviously, to a preacher, to Timothy, a preaching elder in a local church. It speaks to all of us, though. We must understand what we are to do in light of this command if we fear God, if we love Christ, if we live in light of his judgment, if we yearn for his appearing, and if we pray for his kingdom. So let's spend the rest of our time together unpacking some of what this means. First, the most obvious applications are to the ones uh, who publicly proclaim God's message. And, but these uh, applications are important for all of us for two reasons. First, all of us should be handling the word of God with one another in one way or another. Uh, whether as leaders in the local church, as parents of children, or simply as brothers and sisters in this community he has knit us together in, we need to be speaking the word of God to one another and handling it rightly, doing the work of ministry. And second, these things that we can uh, draw as applications are standards to which all of us should hold anyone to who stands behind the pulpit. So we need to know what they are. In interest of time, 
I'll mention five points with very little comment. Perhaps another time we can discuss them in more detail. But for now, to handle the word of God rightly, you must preach the word. It isn't about impressing people. It isn't about sharing your opinion. It's about communicating the message God has given in his word and making that message, the effect that God intended it to have, bear upon your audience. Second, you need to make the most of every opportunity. I told Timothy, be ready in season and out. Third, you must say whatever God says, whether it's what your hearer wants to hear or not. The uh, message that God gives us will often unmask sin and occasionally reprove and rebuke. We must not shrink from that. You must be urgent but not harsh. The, script, the, the word is to come with exhortation, which is a word that speaks of coming alongside and encouraging. I think Paul put it well toward the end of 1 Thessalonians when he said, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So we speak with urgency, but not with harshness. And finally, we must wait for God to do his work. Our passage says that everything must be done with complete patience and teaching. We can deliver the message, but the Spirit must do his work, and he does it in his time. So those five things are things that we must remember as we handle the word with one another and standards to which we must hold those who publicly teach us the word. There's more for us in this passage, however. Why did the Holy Spirit, through Paul, put such solemn emphasis on this command that the word be preached? I think there are at least two reasons evident from the text. First, we need the word of God. Clearly, the reason why it's so vital that the word of God be preached is because the word of God is vital to each of us. In the verses immediately preceding the passage we've been considering, Paul wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if you want to be complete, equipped for every good work, you need the word of God. If you fear God, if you love Jesus Christ, if you take seriously his judgment, if you're waiting for his appearing and praying for his kingdom, you need to take in as much scripture as you can. Make this a priority in your weekly schedule. One aid to that is the Bible reading plan that we've made available that's linked in the last couple e-news and is available in hard copy in the lobby you can take in all of the scripture in a single year by keeping yourself to that schedule. There are many different ways to saturate yourself in the scripture, but that's one to consider and one that we've wanted to try to make easy for you this year. So first then, we need the word of God. But second, we need the word of God preached. In closing, I want to give three reasons for that and make four specific applications for us. 
the reasons that we need the word of God preached all derive from the meaning of the Greek word translated preach in this message. So a definition that suits our context is this. To preach is to publicly announce a message with the authority of its originator. So to preach is to publicly announce a message with the authority of its originator. If you're announcing your own message, you speak with whatever authority you have. If you're announcing the message of another, it comes with that person's authority. So to preach the word of God, then, is to proclaim God's message with God's authority behind it. So if that's what preaching is, why is it so crucial that we have it? I want to give three reasons. First, we need to hear the word of God from a source other than our own reading. The word of God preached comes from someone else. They are doing the announcing, we are doing the listening. So as important as our own Bible reading and study is, why is it that we need to hear it from someone else? Well, notice that the preaching commanded by this passage comes with all patience and teaching. It is more than the word of God read, as important as that is, it's the word of God explained. We need insights into the scriptures that we would not have on our own. It's also the word of God applied. To escape our blind spots, we need someone else to reprove, rebuke, and exhort us. And it is the word of God explained and applied persistently. It is to come with all patience and teaching. We often need the word of God applied to us more persistently than we would do ourselves. For all these reasons, it's important that in addition to our own study, we receive the word of God from another through its being preached. Second, we need the word of God presented with authority. This is more than something merely psychological. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts through the word preached in a way different from the way he works through his word read. We need the word of God applied to us in this way. It's part of our humility before God. We submit ourselves to his word, and since his word commands preaching, then we submit ourselves to the word preached. Third, we need to receive the word of God in the company of other believers. As great as private study is, preaching is the public proclamation of the message. It's given to a group. So, together, when we hear the word of God preached, at least three things happen. It builds our unity. It enables us to think and believe the same things. It gives us common language to use as we speak with one another going through the various events of life. And it gives us a good measure of the substance of our fellowship. As we gather with one another The scriptures and the scriptures preached in all of our hearing forms really the most important things that we should be discussing with one another as we fellowship. So, we need the word of God, and in particular, we need the word of God preached. We need to hear it from a source other than our own reading. We need to hear it proclaimed with authority, and we need to hear it together. So, what then are some specific applications we can make in light of this. 
some specific things we need to do to obey this solemn command to hear the word preached. I'd like to give four. First, we need to be here. If we're able, we need to be here on Sundays as often as possible to hear the word preached together. Of course, there are special circumstances for which God gives special grace, but to the greatest extent possible, we need to be here together to hear his word together. Second, we need to listen. It's not enough for sound waves bearing the message of God to merely bounce off our eardrums. We need to come with the expectation that God himself is going to speak to us through his preaching, through the preaching of his word, and we need to treat that with the obvious respect that it demands. Third, we need to listen for God's word. We need to listen for God's voice. We shouldn't be coming to be entertained. We shouldn't be coming uh, to just check off something on our I'm a good Christian list. We should come expecting to better understand and apply God's word. Don't settle for less. Don't listen for human wisdom or good advice. Listen for the very voice of God through his word. And finally, we need to respond. The word of God should change us, reproving us when appropriate, rebuking us when appropriate, exhorting and encouraging us when appropriate. Our hearts should be different after every sermon, and that should reflect in the way we live our lives through the rest of the week. So, the word says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. If we fear God, if we love Christ, if we live in light of his judgment, if we yearn for his appearing and pray for his kingdom, we need to commit together to honor the preaching of his word in the coming year. So let's be here. Let's listen. Let's listen for God's voice. And let's apply it, respond to it. And now, let us pray. Lord, you have given a very solemn command that your word be preached. May it be faithfully preached at Chapelwood Baptist and throughout our area. May it be faithfully proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to it, that we may be ready to appear before you in joy. Amen.